Here on the Eastern Oklahoma Catholic Podcast, you can find all things Catholic in the Diocese of Tulsa and Eastern Oklahoma. I'm here with Bishop David A. Condola, the fourth bishop of the Diocese of Tulsa in Eastern Oklahoma. Bishop, you were ordained June 29th, 2016, the Feast of St. Peter and Paul. Right. It's an ideal time to get ordained a bishop, huh? Sure, sure. That's a great feast day. You have a, you have a very interesting vocation story in general. Before you were a bishop, discerning the priesthood, before you were even a priest, what were you doing? When I was in high school, I decided I didn't want to go to college, so I went to work. Uh, while I was in high school and then continued working after high school. Uh, two years after high school, I, I uh, started working as a machinist at a little machine shop in Bryan, Texas. And so I was doing that when I made the decision to go into the seminary. And when you were making the decision to go into the seminary, you, you considered you discerned the Trappist monks, correct? Well, I, I was very curious and interested in the Trappists when I got into the seminary. Okay. I'd never heard of them. I grew up in Bryan, Texas. It's a small town, and we never had any religious priests in the parishes in the Bryan College Station area. So when I went in the seminary, I didn't even know what religious life was itself. I hadn't really heard of it, understood it, uh, studied it. And so studying history at the University of Dallas, I came across the Trappists mm -hmm. and the long and rich Cistercian history. Uh, visited Gethsemane Monastery in my second year, I think, of seminary. Was sort of smitten mm -hmm. with the idea of monastic life. Decided I wasn't gonna go there, but then for five years I was still kind of thinking about it. And uh, eventually, in my second year, I think, of theology, I decided to try to enter the monastery. Uh, so I went on some discernment retreats at the monastery, got a deeper understanding of what their life is and what it isn't, mm -hmm. um, and the place that uh, Holy Orders fits in the Trappist cloistered life and it's not the main vocation. The main vocation is being a monk. And so I was feeling pretty strongly called to be uh, serving as a priest. So that helped clarify. And so I continued on in the diocesan seminary and was ordained. What do you think is the attractive part for a man to enter a cloistered life? That's, so ab that's such an abstract thought in the modern world today. Like, what is it that draws men to the cloistered life? I don't think there's there's that much that draws them now, certainly not now. It's a rare vocation, but it is one that God calls men to. For me, uh, it was my, my attraction was in one way encapsulated by a lintel stone across the main gate at the monastery, and carved into the stone are the two words, God alone. And so there's something very mystical, of course, uh, about the idea of taking my whole life in my hands at the beginning of it and saying, I want to give it to God alone and placing it there in the monastery to do that. And so that's what these men and women do. They uh, take their whole life, they consider what they want it to be for, and for them, they feel drawn to 
give it to God through the monastic vocation. And so that to me was very powerful. I still, uh, I still remember that very clearly, God alone. So when you, when you became bishop and you came to the Diocese of Tulsa in eastern Oklahoma, up the Red River, north of the Red Across River. Across the Red River, yeah. Um, something unique about the Diocese of Tulsa in eastern Oklahoma is the monastery here, Clear Creek Abbey. Mm-hmm. Uh, Clear Creek Abbey was something that had your, you'd never been there before. What was your first initial impression of Clear Creek? I had not known anything. Right. about the diocese before I came. I had never been north of Interstate 40, and I'd only been up to Interstate 40 about four times. Um, and I didn't know anything about Clear Creek Monastery or anything else going on in the diocese. So that was very interesting to discover that monastery here. It's connected to an 800-year-old foundation from France, you know, uh, so when I first went out there, I could see that these guys are serious. They're living a very serious approach to the monastic life. Their, their idea is to be there for a thousand years. And so consequently, for example, when I was first there, everything was happening in the crypt. Mm-hmm. The, the bottom floor of what now is the two-floor church because they hadn't built that part yet. Mm-hmm. And it was years since they had built the crypt. And so they're, they're approaching it bit by bit, stone by stone, you could say. Um, but they're very dedicated to their uh, life of prayer and to the keeping the cloister. Uh, one of the beauties of the monastery is the way that people from the diocese are invited in, in various ways. Um, there's a a few rooms set aside for retreats for men. And uh, they have some people who visit the Abbey for mass and to join them for the, the uh, sung hours that they pray. And then uh, twice a year, I think, they have a work day. And there'll be four or 500 people from the area. Yeah, we just finished one, right? Yeah, and we just had the work day. So uh, people come out there because they enjoy the camaraderie, other Catholics being together, but also enjoy helping the monks out, doing something for the monastery. And uh, the community's healthy, it's young, uh, they have lots of vocations, and uh, so I'm very happy that they're here. Yeah, one of the things that was interesting when I first went to Clear Creek for the first time, I noticed how young those monks were. I mean, there's a lot of them, almost half of them probably under 45 years old, it seemed like. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are many of them in their 20s. Right. Yeah. Yeah, they're very young. So what role do you think that Clear Creek plays within the diocese? Obviously, they were here before you came here as bishop, but what what do you think the role is that they play in the diocese? Well, I would say that theirs is, again, a mystical kind of role. Uh, Just as, for example, uh, I said this to the people in Roland one, one evening in a homily, uh, Roland is one of our very small parishes, a rural parish. Uh, they have maybe 20 people that come to Mass on a, on a weekend. People drive back and forth, up and down the road, outside of the church. The church is a small, nondescript kind of a steel building. And uh, people from that community drive back and forth, up and down the road all day, and they don't even know that inside that small, nondescript building is the most important thing in that county, the Blessed Sacrament. And so there's a power there. There's a mystical presence there. And I think something similar for uh, cloistered monasteries. 
their role in the church is one of prayer, mm. purely one of prayer. It's a witness to how important we believe prayer is that we think that it's entirely reasonable and entirely uh, worth it for a person who feels called by God, th there has to be the vocation, to literally give their whole life away just to pray for others. And that's what Clear Creek represents for me. They're out there in Holbert, a little bitty rural part of our diocese on that beautiful hill. And knowing that they're there, you know, as I go about my uh, activities around the diocese, knowing that those men are there praying for us, it gives one a, a great sense of comfort and, and uh, security of hope. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the service that they, they, that they mainly uh, provide, mm -hmm. a witness to prayer. What was one thing that surprised you as a bishop that was like one of the greatest strengths of the Diocese of Tulsa in Eastern Oklahoma? Maybe something that you didn't realize was, was going to be a factor or? <laughs> I suppose in a way there weren't any surprises given that I don't know anything. <laughs> <laughs> when I got here, I didn't know anything about the place. Um, it was surprising to me. I used, I used to say this when I first got here. I thought there would be roads. That's a joke that Oklahomans get because um, the roads are so poor <laughs> throughout the diocese. So that was a joke. But um, uh, the day of the announcement, we did that at Catholic Charities and they have a, 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 a portrait there of Stanley Rother. Mm -hmm. I'd never heard anything about Stanley Rother. I didn't know anything about Stanley Rother prior to coming here, and then they took me aside and said, this is Stanley Rother, priest from our diocese, who was a martyr in Guatemala, and who's to be beatified soon. Now he's been beatified. Well, there were 40-some thousand people at the beatification, so clearly I was in the dark. A lot of other people, even in Texas, knew about Stanley Rother. I just had not heard of him. So learning that we had a saint from the diocese, that was pretty... Uh, uh, amazing and, and surprising somewhat. Um, one thing I suppose, maybe not so much a surprise, but something I was pleased by, is that it's so similar to Texas. The culture and the, the uh, even the geography to some uh, degree. Uh, I felt very immediately at home here. It was easy to feel at home here. I tell people now that when I cross the red going back and forth between Texas and Oklahoma, I feel like I'm going home in both directions. Either, either direction I'm going, I'm going home. Um, and, uh, you know, the diocese I came from is the Austin Diocese in Texas, which is, I think, considered a rural diocese, a largely rural diocese. So I thought I knew something about what rural is like. But even the, the smallest parish there is probably 50 or 100 people. Uh, and coming here and finding that I've got a number of parishes here that are even very tiny, mm -hmm. uh, that was a, a new experience of what rural uh, means. That little southeast corner of Oklahoma where Broken Bow and all of that is, boy, there's nobody in there. Mm -hmm. I mean, except for that strip along 59, uh, there's that whole big swath in the corner well, there's hardly any population at all. We don't have any Catholic presence in there because there's no... There's no one there. There's no people there. <laughs> so uh, it's beautiful, though. That area is really beautiful. 
if you could look into the future and say, like, this is what we, I hope that the Diocese of Tulsa and Eastern Oklahoma could become. This is what we're shooting for in 15, 20 years. This is what I hope the diocese will become. What, is it, what would that look like? We're, in terms of Catholic population, we're very much a mission diocese. Our Catholic population is very small relative to the rest of the population of the state. And uh, so that would be, I think my vision would be that we had lived, that we had come to know Jesus ourselves in such a way and lived our faith in him in such a way that we were able to attract other people to the church. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm the bishop of every person in the diocese, Catholic or not. And so as I'm driving around, I'm seeing all my people, but they're not coming to our churches. And so that prayer, you know, that prayerful desire that the church would live its life in such a way that others would see and be invited in. Yeah, one thing unique about the Catholic faith is that when you walk into a Catholic church, there's something sacred about it, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's holy. It's set apart from. And so when when non-Catholics walk into a Catholic church, it's consecrated. It's consecrated. You know, there's, they realize, oh, there's something sacred here. Mm -hmm. What role does the liturgy play in that? everyday life of a Catholic. Mm -hmm. Okay, you asked about surprises. That was another one. Uh, the first day that I came here, the first thing that I did was went to the cathedral to pray, mostly because my head was spinning. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so we have a beautiful cathedral, as you know. Mm -hmm. And so that was, that was uh, a wonderful surprise, was to see, wow, there's this gorgeous cathedral, and I didn't have to do anything. Uh, <laughs> To, it was already make, here. Yeah, it was already here. But the cathedral is a good example. When liturgy is done well, when liturgy is done according to the mind and the vision of the church, it draws a person out of his or her daily ordinary life mm -hmm. into mystical realms. Um, and even if nothing's going on, just the space, if it's done well, will do that. So, you know, our cathedral church, you walk in, people's eyes are immediately drawn up because it's a tall interior uh, space. The windows, the art, the statues, the beauty of the place. If you know nothing about Catholic liturgy, nothing even about Christianity, and you walk in that building, you're going to understand that, I don't know what these folks do, but whatever's going on up there, that area up there towards the front with that little red light and that gold box and whatever, there's, th that's obviously important. I don't know what it all is, but that's important. Uh, as they come to understand it, though, they have an even deeper appreciation that, oh, yeah, that is that's the center of the universe right, right there. Yeah. yeah, The source and summit of our faith. Source and summit, yeah. I mean, it is worth our our firing our imagination. Uh, I love looking at the stars in a clear night sky. And I love reading about astrophysics. And, you know, we've got this great new James Webb telescope out there. And I'm looking forward to the pictures that it can bring back to us and so forth. Because the expanses of the universe and the, the amazing distances and the, the way in which in the universe, time and distance are, are uh, units, you know, they measure each other. Uh, and yet, the person who made all of it, 
is here in our church. And so for us to allow that to fire our imagination, it's the reason why adoration is so popular among Catholics, uh, to be able to spend time contemplating not the stars, but the maker of the stars who's right here with me. Uh, yeah, that's a great thing. One of the things that you did when you became bishop is you, you started an institute, the Institute for, uh, the Alcuin Institute for Catholic Culture. Mm -hmm. um, what was the purpose of, that, that's a unique part of the diocese, what, what was the purpose of the, the institute? Well, the Alcuin Institute recognizes that uh, we're living in some ways in a post-Christian world. Catholic culture uh, is much lower, particularly in a place like Oklahoma where we're so small a part of the population. And, uh, you know, we live in this hyper-politicized culture and this culture that in some ways has lost its, its courage to believe anything that there could be, for example, objective truths and so forth. Uh, families struggle in that culture. Uh, many Catholic families are not able to afford Catholic schools, Catholic education, so the children are being um, schooled in public schools and sometimes taught things that are uh, just simply contrary to human reason and to the faith. And so, in the midst of all of that, what can we do as a diocese? How can we as a diocese try to provide for families a vision and a way of, of accomplishing Catholic culture and living a Catholic life, living in a Catholic worldview? And so that's what the Alcuin Institute is able to do is to provide small groups. The way they operate is to pull together small groups of friends. Now, we could say disciples is another way of describing that. Small groups of believers to come together in a social setting, a kind of a setting where they can share food and, and drink together and life in a, in a home setting, a setting like a home, and with a text an original text that comes from our history and from our wisdom tradition and discuss it together. And also discuss, what does this say to me about what God is doing in my life right now? I have to go to work and I pay my bills and the children go to school and I'm running my business and I'm planting my crops and all the things that we do. In the midst of all of that, God is not silent. So can we learn to listen can we become sensitive to the movement of the Spirit in our life around us and to the movement of the Spirit in the ordinary things of a family? Um, I saw an article or a book or something recently, and it was something like God amongst the dishes, you know, something mm -hmm. like that. Uh, well, that's true and that's real. When a husband and a wife are living out their vocation with their children in their home, and they're feeling very ordinary. They're probably at times wondering, are we even doing this right? <laughs> nobody gave us a Guilty. <laughs> nobody gave us a book. Is it supposed to be like this? Right. Surely it's not supposed to be. <laughs> um, you know, I'm one of 12 children. I think there were many moments when my parents thought, what has, 
Where did we lose control of all of this? Um, in the midst of that, though, they are precisely doing what God is calling them to do. And for them to, to grow in their sensitivity and awareness allows them to relax into the fact that, yes, this is how it is and this is how it should be. We're here loving our children in the, in the house. It's a mess. Uh, it was clean this morning. Now it's a mess. And uh, that's what we should be doing. Uh, so, you know, I think that's part of what the Alquin Institute can do and is trying to do as we gather groups, particularly in the rural areas, you know, in a diocese like, like this one, a unique feature of a diocese like this one is you have two or three large population centers. And for us, really just one big population center. But then you have everything else is very small, cities and towns, you know, little uh, places. So the most of the diocese is in those rural areas. Well, it's real easy to lose sight of that fact mm. that those are most of the diocese is in those little areas. So we have to make sure that we keep people connected. Mm. Uh, one of the things that the COVID craziness that we've all gone through one of the things that we learned from it was how to use technology better mm. to keep people connected. Uh, when we have our presbyteral council meetings, a couple of the men uh, zoom in because they're in at those outer rural parishes. Well, in the past, we couldn't have had pastors from outer rural parishes on the council because how could, it's hard for them to come in for the meetings. Now we can do that. So it's things like that. Yeah, what, what role do you think media plays in evangelization you know, with how busy and loud the, the world is? Uh, you know, there's controversy of whether what role, you know, media yeah. actually plays in evangelization. Yeah. Turn that camera off. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it is a, a great temptation to just write it all off. Because sometimes you see things that are so foul and you see the ways in which media manipulates and so forth. Right now, we've got a whole propaganda war going on, right? Our, our political situation is, and with the news media being so corrupt now that we wonder, can we believe anything we see or read? Okay. We have to resist the temptation to just write it all off because it's also powerful. Um, I can get on my phone and if I want to, I can uh, surf around and find every kind of any kind of foul thing in the world. But at the same time, on my phone, I have the Bible and I have the Liturgy of the Hours and I have, uh, you know, Bishop Barron's Word on Fire videos and uh, on YouTube, you could find every kind of stupid, crazy thing in the world. At the same time, you can find uh, documentaries about saints and all of these things. So I think we don't want to write it off. But we do need to be aware that the nature of the machine is that it needs to control us because what it needs is for us to keep our eyeballs glued on it all the time. And so the people behind it are naturally going to be wanting to create content that will cause us to want to keep our eyeballs on it all the time. 
they can tell their advertisers that, hey, I got all these people keeping their eyeballs on it all the time. Okay. Uh, I use this analogy sometimes when I talk to people about this. Uh, in my wood shop out here in the garage, I have about six different kinds of hammers. But no matter the fact that I have a bunch of different kinds of hammers, I've never in my life gone out there and grabbed a hammer and then come in the house and walk around looking for something to hit with it. The only time I ever go get a hammer is when I already have in mind something that needs to be hit. Then I go and hit it, or them, and then I go put the hammer back up. That's because the hammer is a tool and I don't need it to entertain me. Okay, I think if we use our media in the same way, if we maintain awareness that that phone that I have in my pocket, that computer and iPad and TV and radio and all those things that we have, those things are merely tools and we should use them as tools, but we should decide from other means where we're going to spend our time and how important it is to do this or that or the other activity. And I think if we do that, then we can, then the media can really benefit us and we can use media in a way that benefits us. Uh, otherwise, we'll end up sort of robots mm -hmm. like everyone else. You know, we've seen that meme about the, the salamander that becomes a monkey that becomes a man that becomes a man standing upright that becomes a man with his neck bent over looking at his phone <laughs> that then devolves back down through the monkey to the salamander and uh, so we we have to avoid that without at the same time saying it's all bad uh, dr gene twingy has done uh, research on the effects of smartphones and those kinds of devices on teens mm. and it's alarming it is alarming if they're allowed, if, if they're uninformed just because they're young, if they're inexperienced, let me say inexperienced minds are allowed without even being aware that they're being manipulated by all the things they're looking at. If they're allowed on their own to use the devices as they want, they will not know how to think. Mm -hmm. They will not know how to turn the devices off. They will not know how to sit in a room and be happy on their own with the thoughts in their own mind without having something else artificial from outside helping them. Well, that's no way to live, right? But you don't, on the other hand, want to say, well, then they're never going to have any of that. No, they can use it, but they need someone to teach them how. Now, if their parents are also living that way, their parents are going to have a hard time teaching them how. I do, uh, I do say this, though. I do feel sorry for parents because how in the world do you keep up with it? It's a constant struggle. Yeah. I mean, and, and as soon as you figure out, it's changed. Yeah. As soon as you, as soon as you catch up to the, to the race, they're, yeah. they're going somewhere else. Yeah. So I think for parents, it must be a real challenge. And it seems to me like some apostolate should take that on an apostolate that's formed to keep its eye on what are the teens and the tweens even doing with all their devices and then providing a sort of a training, if you will, a YouTube channel or something to alert parents and to help them understand how to access and, you know, what's happening with the kids and where they are now and who's trying to get them, mm -hmm. you know. There are people who have bad intent trying to get at those teens as well.
One thing you've really focused on in, in, in your time here as bishop is in a, you have a heart for, for, for the domestic church, for, for young Catholic families, mm-hmm. um, which I, as a young Catholic family, I, you are one. I, I, yeah, I am one. I, I appreciate it. Um, what, what would you, what do you say to, to those families who are struggling to, you know, to, to live out the Catholic faith? They're, every time they turn around, it's like they're being attacked for one reason or another. Uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, a lot of times, Sundays are more of a, a, a physical workout than a spiritual workout, mm-hmm. wrangling all your kids to try to get to Holy Mass, you know, on time and make sure they all have their shoes on, you know, <laughs> yeah, at, at the same time. What would you say to, to, to the young Catholic families? Well, they don't have to have their shoes on, just somebody's shoes just on. Somebody's one of them, yeah. yeah. Um, now, you saw today at the consecration mass, the little kid that got loose and got up on the altar <laughs> during the was literally running around the altar. That was so funny. <laughs> Um, now I have, I have spent years, uh, as a vocation director mm-hmm. for the diocese where I was. And as a campus minister, I did a lot of marriage preparation, uh, at the diocese where I was. And so I used to joke, uh, to people and say that, uh, in all the marriage preparation couples that I worked with, I, I was only successful four times and all the rest of them got married. <laughs> that's, that's good. <laughs> but it does, it does, uh, capture a, a little truth there in the sense that I do worry that sometimes Catholics think that marriage is a default vocation. Uh, and they, they think that, well, I couldn't be a priest or a religious. And so I got married. If you think that way, you just completely miss out on the church's understanding of the holiness of marriage, of the profound, um, the profound uh, privilege it is that God gives to couples. A, a couple who conceive a child have just co-created with God a being who will never end. The moon and the stars will burn out. The whole universe will go cold and we will still be living. And all those children that you and your wife have conceived will still be living. That's a profound reality. So I think that young couples should be thinking in these terms. What is my vision and what is my uh, mission as a young father or a young mother? What is it that we want to do together as a couple? Why should we get married? The mere fact that we fall in love is not much of a reason, especially given that most of it happens automatically anyway. Um, No, that's not enough of a reason. There must be something we want to do with this love. And one way to capture it, one way I think to, to visualize what I'm getting at, is to use two photographs. And I would suggest to young couples to do this. They can't use theirs, they'll have to use somebody else's, but uh, two photographs. I'll use my own parents as an example. We had the photograph in the album of the day of their marriage, these skinny 26 year olds who were still smiling and looked energetic and weren't tired yet. We still, they had that photograph. 
And then we had the photograph of them at the 50th wedding anniversary party. And there were 44 other people in that photograph who were not there, who didn't exist at the 26-year-old photograph. That's their mission. That's their vocation to capture it. And to be thinking that way at the beginning and to not just let it all happen sort of accidentally. Now, it's going to, <laughs> life happens and so you're going to do what you got to do. But take, for example, uh, the, the very weighty uh, responsibility of a couple to decide how many children, when to have children, how to space the children. If you, if you think about just my present circumstances here and now, we're newly married, we got a mortgage and we got a car payment and our jobs are just sort of new and we haven't built up an IRA and blah, 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 and all these things. That's gonna lead you to one decision. If you have in mind that 50th anniversary photograph and you're already thinking, who do we want to be in that photograph? What do we want that day to be like? That would be a great exercise for a young married or engaged couple to go through to talk together about what do we want that 50th anniversary day to be like? Who do we want to be there? Where do we want to go? Who do we want to see? What do we want to talk about? What do we want to have been the memories? Uh, I think that will lead to a different uh, judgment on when and how and how many and so forth of children, for ex as one example. So I think that, that that would be one thing I would want to say to young couples is to don't, don't, of course we have to live in the now, but don't be afraid to vision and to visualize and to think about and to dream about. What do we want this marriage, this love affair that we have between us, what do we want it to go out and do? What is God going to use it for in the kingdom? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Last question. Who do you think is the saint for our times? Aha, uh -huh. that's a pretty good question. Um, the saint for our times. Um, you know, I think everybody who is going to try to answer that question is going to be in some ways limited by their own knowledge of history and sure. knowledge, the fact that they have lived in times. Uh, my favorite saint is John Paul II, and so uh, I certainly think he would be one for our times. I sometimes think of him and Mother Teresa together, but I, I pick John Paul because he had a profound faith, but he had a great awareness of the world. And so he had this great understanding of the fact that the faith is supposed to move the world. It's supposed to do something in the world, not just exist and defensively try to uh, field off the world. It's supposed to change the world. And so certainly we need that. We need to be uh, people who are aware that we live in a, in sometimes a really odd time, you know. Uh, we, we're afraid to the, the culture is afraid to admit that there's such a thing as an objective truth. We can't even admit that there's men and women in, right. in this culture. 
And so that can cause us to maybe shrink back knowing that what we believe maybe is not going to be popular in much of the culture. But that's, that wouldn't be the right approach. The right approach is the fact that people out there, and we don't know how many and who they are, are looking for something. And if we would live boldly what we have, they might on that day tell us, I don't want to see you again. But it may plant a seed. Mm. Uh, it may cause them to think, well, maybe there is something more that I'm missing. And then we could bring them along. So. Bishop Connerly, I appreciate so much the time and uh, thank you so much. Yeah, always good to be with you. Adam. Always. Okay. The Eastern Oklahoma Catholic Podcast is brought to you by the Office of Communications at the Diocese of Tulsa and Eastern Oklahoma.